In the 1980s, Brazil had a large domestic computer industry. Dozens of Brazilian-owned companies employing tens of thousands of Brazilians producing tens of thousands of Brazilian PCs. In the 1970s, a small set of Brazilian government bureaucrats recognized the growing importance of the computer industry. And in a bold move, they reserved the most exciting part of that industry exclusively for Brazilian firms. These protections helped develop an industry, but only for so long. In this video, we're going to review the Brazilian computer industry. But first, a quick reminder about the newsletter. Sign up for updates and new analysis, the full scripts of selected popular videos, and more. The sign up link is in the video description below. I try to put one out every week, maybe two. All right, back to the show. Brazil's first computer was imported, of course. In 1957, the city government of Sao Paulo imported a Sperry Univac 120 to track water distribution. The 120 had about 4,500 vacuum tubes and could do about 12,000 addition and subtraction operations per minute. Just four years later, in 1961, four students at the Elite Technical Institute of Aeronautics, called ITA, slapped together Brazil's first domestically produced computer, the Zezinho. They made it as a teaching tool, a year-end graduation project, rather than an industrial product, and it shows. Built with 1,500 transistors, the thing looked like a fridge without any doors and just barely worked. After finishing, the team went their separate ways. Another student team made some improvements to the Zenzino in 1963, after which its precious transistors were cannibalized for spare parts by subsequent student teams. The Zenzinho only hinted at the talent and potential of Brazil's engineers. For instance, another small group of researchers at the ITA had started to produce basic germanium diodes and transistors for aircraft, building coal furnaces to extract the germanium. This progress, however, abruptly came to a halt in 1964 when the military overthrew the democratically elected government and imposed a dictatorship. The ITA became far more oppressively run and subsequently lost its academic reputation, with many of the staff going abroad. After the military dictatorship took over, the country became friendlier to foreign capital. Multinationals like IBM, Burroughs, Digital Equipment, and Honeywell entered the Brazilian data processing market. The market grew at a blistering 30-40% to 40 a year, making the Brazilian computer market the 12th largest in the world back then. Yet despite this, there were many voices who wanted the government to do more. Many people, including those in academia and pockets of government, pushed for a Brazilian computer industry. First, Brazilian electrical engineering professors wanted a robust domestic job market for their students. IBM and Burroughs had manufacturing operations in Brazil, but they were mostly low-level assembly operations. There was no R&D being done. So many talented Brazilians would join a multinational only to find themselves doing menial sales or assembly tasks unbefitting of their abilities. Second, every domestically made computer replacing an imported one helped preserve the country's precious foreign exchange reserves. Third, and most importantly, there were national security issues with relying on imported computers for military equipment, and that was the way the domestic advocates got their foot in the door. In the late 1960s, the Brazilian Navy purchased six frigates from the British firm Vosper Thornycroft. These Vosper's frigates were fitted with sophisticated Ferranti mini-computers controlling their navigation and firing systems. 
How would any Brazilian be able to fix such an English computer if it were to break? This argument made a lot of sense, and in 1971, Brazil's National Economic Development Bank and the Navy joined together to form a special working group, informally known as the Guaranis Project. The Guaranis Project announced that they would award a $4 million tender to a university team with a domestic computer within four years. One institution to try for the Brazilian Navy's tender was the State University of Campinas. They started a project called the Cisna Branco, or White Swan. The name is a reference to the Brazilian Navy's anthem. The White Swan would produce a mini-computer kind of like the IBM 1130, but with more features like a 24-bit processor. They garnered a lot of media attention because they had two American-trained returnees on their team. Meanwhile, on July 1972, the Microelectronics Lab at the University of Sao Paulo, the Laboratorio de Sistemas Digitais, psychedelically abbreviated to LSD, set up their own project to compete with the White Swan. They called it the Ugly Duckling, in a funny contrast with the White Swan. The Ugly Duckling was rough and practical. Everything from hardware to software had to be built from scratch. The Ugly Duckling was a box about 1 meter by 1 meter large and had about 450 chips. It had much less memory than the White Swan, a 4 kilobyte magnetic core memory made by Philips, which made it more difficult to program. The Ugly Duckling might have been ugly, but its construction was quite good. And most importantly, the LSD team, like all real artists, shipped. After three years, a new computer was presented to Brazilian officials. Despite an awkward situation, when a photographer tripped over a wire and disconnected the whole thing, they won. LSD was given charge of the hardware, while the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro worked on producing the software. Another goal of the Goranis project was to found a company to produce the Navy's domestic process computers. Thus, in 1974, BNDE set up a three-way joint venture between itself, the Brazilian firm EE Electronica, and Ferranti, called Computadores e Sistemas Brasileiros, or COBRA. COBRA's first product was the COBRA 700 series, a Brazilian assembled line of mini-computers based on Ferranti designs. After that, COBRA struck a technology transfer deal with a small American company called Sitecore Inc. after the larger Data General declined their terms. This created the COBRA 400 series of computers based on the Sitecore 440. COBRA then acquired the Ugly Ducking project, now called G10. They merged the teams with two other university projects producing terminals, the keyboard and monitor interfaces, to create Brazil's first domestically designed and built mini-computer, the Cobra 530 of the Cobra 500 line. Despite these new products, Cobra struggled to make money, unable to meet the Brazilian Navy's product goals. EE Electronica and Ferranti quickly sold their stakes in the firm. Cobra needed help. The Brazilian government has long directly intervened and developed its various industries for instance, protecting sectors like sugar, salt, and fishing, or creating national champions in automobiles, steel, shipping, and most famously, oil. Computers in the IT industry are no different. In April 1972, the government set up the Coordinating Committee for Electronic Processing Activities, or CAPRA. Its goals were to coordinate electronic processing activities in Brazil. I mean, that's what the name literally says. 
In practice, this meant managing the flows of computer imports into the country. Over time, however, they realized that they were also in an ideal position to help develop a domestic computer industry and save the then-struggling Cobra. The 1970s were a decade of oil crises, and Brazil imported 80% of its oil. As the crisis worsened over the years, Capra gained increasing political power to pursue their goals. In December 1975, the government passed Resolution 104, giving Capra new powers. 104 said that all imports of computers, accessories, and components had to be approved by Capra. Capra promptly announced the import limit on all computers, $110 million worth in 1976, growing to about $130 million in 1978. IBM saw what was coming and made an impromptu public announcement that they would now sell Brazilian assembled System 32 mini computers. These were great computers at a very low cost, and IBM quickly received 400 orders of interest. IBM's move would have been the death knell for Cobra, which then relied on regular cash infusions from the Brazilian Development Bank, were it not for what Capra did next. In July 1976, Capra decided to split the computer market into two. IBM and Burroughs can sell into high-end computers. After all, these were far more sophisticated than anything Brazil can offer. But the burgeoning mini and microcomputer markets would be reserved for special firms to be chosen in a later competition. This is similar to what India had done with ECIL and their mini-computer strategy. At the same time, Capra brought together a consortium of 11 Brazilian banks to recapitalize Cobra on the basis of bank computerization. BNDE and other government organizations kicked in a few more million. These decisions were entirely made by Capra, an administrative panel stocked with nationalist-minded technical people. Brazil's higher government hadn't been much involved. Capra's decision was thus controversial. Many economic elites, including Brazilian business owners, opposed the protectionist decision for economic efficiency reasons. Others agreed with the principle but felt that the multinationals should be at least be allowed to do joint ventures. The multinationals brought immense political pressure to bear. IBM even met with Brazil's president Ernesto Geisel. Data General lobbied the American government to ban certain Brazilian imports in retaliation. But Capra, with backing from the media, held their ground. In 1977, they slammed the door on the big multinationals. They chose just Cobra and four other brand-new domestically-owned firms to build mini-computers, SID, Labo, Edisa, and Cisco. IBM and other American makers still dominated the traditional computer market, but nevertheless, it was immensely frustrating to be locked out of the nascent mini-computer market. Capra's actions had impressed the military, perhaps a little too much. The military decided that Capra had a little too much political independence and that information technology was too important to be left in the hands of mere civilians. In 1979, they intervened, co-opting Capra with a new military-controlled body called SEI. SEI's ties to the military put somewhat of a chill on discourse. They were authoritarian and acted somewhat arbitrarily, monitoring and punishing people in the industry who didn't repudiate leftist ideologies. Regardless of their behavior, however, SEI largely continued Capra's policies, reserving the market for domestic players and restricting imports unless no suitable alternative was available. 
though they did balance this in consideration of the needs of other parties. For instance, in 1980, they allowed IBM to manufacture quantities of the medium-sized computer model 4331 under certain conditions. In the first half of the 1980s, SEI oversaw a rapidly growing Brazilian domestic computer industry. Brazilian firms gained 80% market share in the four years after 1978. Cobra was the largest Brazilian computer firm by far, with 70% market share of the mini-computer in 1980. Their domestically designed and built Cobra 530 mini-computer mainframe, the one based on the Ugly Duckling, sold over 6,000 units, at prices comparable to those from European providers. But they weren't alone. The next largest computer makers were Itautech, part of the larger Itau Group, and SID. By 1983, there were 100 Brazilian computer companies, employing some 18,000 people. 1,200 of those were high-paying R&D jobs. This was also the time of the PC revolution. Powered by American-made microprocessors, Brazilian 8-bit PCs, or microcomputers, were as competent as their larger mini-computer cousins, but in a far tinier package. Many of these PCs were reverse-engineered clones of American computers like Sinclair, Apple, and TRS. Cheap imported microprocessors allowed many companies like Scopus to easily enter the industry. And they were not all that backwards either, at first. Domestically designed PCs like the Prologica CP500 were comparable to the Tandy TRS microcomputers sold in the United States in the mid-1980s. Some of these were good enough to be exported. In 1983, Brazil exported $26 million worth of PCs compatible with the IBM PC AT standard. I should note that despite this success, none of these computer companies were internationally competitive, nor particularly large. The total capital of Cobra, for instance, in 1983 was just $15 million. Nevertheless, the market reserve policy was judged to be a success and was renewed in 1984 with the 1984 informatics law. Like I said, much of this computer boom relied on the availability of cheap but powerful microprocessors from America. The 1980s saw the VLSI revolution, which brought increasingly more of the whole system onto a single chip. This plus the PC's open ecosystem made it far easier to assemble a PC, but at the same time it sucked away value from the PC maker to the semiconductor maker. Imports of these increasingly sophisticated semiconductors grew from 63.3 million in 1978 to 95.6 million in 1981. So, for the government, it made sense to try for a domestic semiconductor industry too. In 1972, there was a largely government-funded startup semiconductor company called Transit Semiconductor. They collaborated with the University of Sao Paulo to build a fab in the Brazilian city of Montes Claros. Their plan was to first make diodes and then linear and digital integrated circuits. But Transit failed to produce good quality diodes perhaps due to insufficient knowledge transfer from the university. They closed in 1980 due to serious financial issues. By 1984, there were 18 semiconductor firms in Brazil. However, there was just one Brazilian-owned firm doing anything more than low-value assembly, SID. Considering the small size of Brazil's market demand, only $180 million total in 1984, some consolidation made sense. 
So in 1983, SEI attempted to follow its mini-computer market strategy for the semiconductor market, applying a market reserve. They selected three domestically-owned semiconductor companies, SID, Itautech, and Elibra, to enter the larger semiconductor fabrication market, starting from back-end processes and moving upwards. There seemed to have been some successes. There were even some car radios exported with domestically designed and fabricated Brazilian chips. However, bad financials and changing conditions in the 1990s ended this Brazilian foray into semiconductors. Throughout the 1980s, Brazil's domestic computer industry started to seriously lag behind that of the rest of the world. Traditional mini-computer makers like Cobra were badly hit by the PC revolution. They needed to migrate to more powerful models with 32-bit processors called Super Mini Computers, which is what other mini-computer makers abroad had done. In 1983, Cobra began developing an indigenous 32-bit workstation design based on the commercially available Motorola 68000 microprocessor. Other Brazilian mini-computer makers like Elibra Computadores took a different path, licensing an older VAX 750 design from Digital Equipment Corporation. But those makers were limited because of course the foreigners won't license them their best designs. In the end, the biggest winner of the supermicro market was IBM, which, as I mentioned earlier, was selling its medium-sized 4331 computer. Their market share doubled from 1982 to 1984. By 1983, the Brazilian mini-computer makers were selling less systems than what they had four years earlier. They had gotten themselves caught between IBM above them and the PC makers below and ended up with nowhere to go. Compared to the declining mini-computer makers, the Brazilian PC makers seemed like the shining jewel with over 50% share of the market. But by the late 1980s, the Brazilian PC makers lagged their foreign competitors in performance and cost. Technical performance-wise, they lagged by about 3 to 5 years. And in cost, a PC in Brazil costs 70 to 100% more than what a comparable model would cost in the US. Though I should note, it was only 15 to 25% more than what prices were in West Germany then. This cost difference is attributed in part to the higher cost of raw goods like copper and chemicals for PCBs. Non-semiconductor electronic components cost two to five times more in Brazil than in the rest of the world. And in larger part, to the lack of scale of these small Brazilian firms. In 1989, the leading Brazilian PC makers produced 20,000 PCs. Taiwan's Acer did 400,000 by itself. The manufacturing process lacked significant automation, particularly when it came to the PCBs. The most prominent sign of the effect this technological and price lag had on the market was how many people sought import or black market alternatives for computers. Large buyers like big businesses and the government cannot avoid the trade barriers and had to import. But despite the fact that the import process took a long time and required a lot of paperwork, they were disgruntled enough to deal with it for a foreign alternative. Small buyers, on the other hand, could resort to the black market and smuggling. By 1991, the black market was estimated to have provided 65% of all Brazil's PCs. Large industrial players in Brazil's other industries started complaining that the market reserve was a costly subsidy. Economists' calculations pegged it to be 20-33% to of the computer's market price. Such a subsidy was easier to swallow during Brazil's boom-boom economic years, 
but this took place amidst a general economic malaise. Times weren't so ebullient as before. Unemployment in Brazil topped 25% in 1987. Inflation that year was 366%. The late 1980s saw the computer industry's growth rates rapidly decelerate from 30% to around 10% a year. Brazilian manufacturers were concerned about how the indigenous technology gap impeded their own competitiveness abroad, particularly when it comes to computer-controlled manufacturing. Externally, there was plenty of pressure from foreign governments as well, particularly the United States. At the time, the U.S. was Brazil's largest trading partner, accounting for 23% of total export sales and 16% of non-oil export sales. Considering Brazil's high foreign debt at the time, interruption in these sales would not be ideal. Most foreign observers had hoped that Brazilian democratization would loosen the market controls. But when the Brazilian government renewed the market reserve in 1984, there were loud protests from the multinationals, particularly the American ones. A year after the 1984 informatics law, the Reagan administration filed an investigation on its own accord. Trade talks went back and forth for several years, touching on aspects of both software and hardware. I don't think serious sanctions were ever imposed on Brazilian goods, but American threats of doing so, like one memorable 1987 announcement from Reagan, spurred the Brazilians to keep negotiating. These internal and external pressures made it time for a change. In 1990, President Fernando Collor de Mello became Brazil's first democratically elected president after the end of the military dictatorship. One of the policies he ran on would be liberalization of the Brazilian IT markets. He followed through on his promises. Within five years, Compaq and IBM became two of the top three PC makers in Brazil. Production and imports surged as supply adjusted to meet Brazil's large domestic PC market demands. Large PC makers like Dell and Gateway entered the market, taking over local firms and opening local factories. Several Brazilian computer makers survived either by working in specific niches like banking or the military. Cobra, for instance, is today owned by the Bank of Brazil, now renamed to BB Technologies and Services. We should first celebrate the achievements of the Brazilian computer policy. They navigated significant political challenges to craft and sustain a domestic computer manufacturing industry for 15 years. In the aspects of national security, technological independence, and domestic employment, I think Brazil managed to achieve what they wanted. Much of this was done without the help of foreign technology transfer agreements, since many of the big multinationals declined to do it with them. Where the policymakers fell short was in efficiency and directional focus. Potential PC makers who wanted to start a PC company had to go to the government, which then only looked at the national origins of the team's technology rather than their efficiency, scale, or market size. So Brazil's computer makers stayed home, where it was safe. The policymakers protected them for as long as they could. But once those protections lifted due to political and economic reasons, those companies had little chance of survival. And that is the tragedy of the Brazilian computer industry. All right, everyone, that's it for tonight. Thanks for watching. Subscribe to the channel, sign up for the newsletter, and I'll see you guys next time.